Welcome to Faith and Science. I'm Dr. John Ashton. I think, you know, when my experience is when we're out in nature and we come across a particularly large wild animal, we see large wild animals, there's something, you know, really special about, um, I guess, just, you know, being able to see them. Of course, we see a lot of very small animals in the wild, you know, little ants and grasshoppers and small birds and... and uh, you know, fish and and these sort of things, um, but um, don't often see um, la- really large wild animals in the wild, just in wild. I mean, we can we can see some in zoos and this sort of thing. And so, I had a really experience, uh, a really interesting experience while going for a um, a walk with my wife around the foreshore of um, a lake that is nearby. And as we approached the, uh, the, the a particular corner where there was a rocky ledge that went out and it was, it was quite low tide, so we were able to walk out on this rocky ledge a little bit further, I noticed these two fins in the water, but then they, they went under the water and then they came up again. And they were very close to the shore, like only a couple of metres, um, you know, six feet, two metres away from the the rocky ledge. So it must have dropped away quite deeply and went over and realised it was a very large ray. Now, I'm not an expert on obser- observing rays. Um, a friend of mine said it might have been a, a manta ray. But it was very interesting in that it was just swimming very slowly along. It would have been um, perhaps one and a half metres um, across the between the, the fins going up. So, uh, And maybe the, the entire width of the ray when it was out flat might have been close to two metres, I'm not sure. But anyway, in that order of side, which is quite large, I've seen you know, lots of small, smaller stingrays, maybe uh, you know, two-thirds of a metre across this sort of size. But to see one that big, but also swimming on the surface so that these two fins, the edges of its, um, its flaps, whatever they're called, I've forgotten now, uh, curved upwards and were in the water and they certainly looked like two shark fins and then they would go down. And we were able to see this uh, very large animal swimming along, you know, very, very slowly. And I don't know, it was just something seeing a large animal like that so close, just swimming along and just being able to observe it. Um, in in the wild, just just natural sort of did something um, for me. And a little bit further around uh, the lake, um, a few days later, we were walking along. We saw some quite large, uh, saw one, oh, no, one or two, I can't remember now, uh, nearby quite large turtles uh, swimming along. And uh, it was a common species of uh, of turtle that is found off. Uh, the coast of uh, New South Wales, Australia. But again, just being able to watch um, uh, these turtles just feeding um, and uh, just, again, very close to shore, um, less than a metre off uh, from the rocky shoreline. 
I was thinking uh, again too of um, just recently on the on the news there was uh, a report of a hundred humpback whales um, that uh, had gathered and were were hunting um, the, um, the the small fish a pod big pod of of uh, fish or big school of fish I suppose and it was a pod of whales. Um, that uh, and the whales were working dead. They'd surrounded this uh, school of fish and were herding in, and then they were coming in and feeding. And it was uh, filmed um, on the news and uh, written up in the in the newspapers because there was a, a whale watching tour boat that happened to be right nearby just at the time. And um, the, maybe somebody had a drone or maybe there was a helicopter, but they had uh, aerial footage of it and showing the whales just turning on their side and eating these, um, uh, the, the, the fish just scooping them in um, and having a, a big uh, feeding meal, I guess, a banquet, you might say, a whale banquet. Um, and there were, they said, said um, there was about 100 whales um, eating of the of these humpback whales, and I th- I think whales. Um, I I know again when the the whales are going past the coast of New South Wales, they're mainly humpback whales. We always enjoy going out and and seeing the whales. We see the the water spouts at times when they surface, but if they breach, and of course humpback whales are quite uh, famous for for breaching, is um, uh, it, it's really spectacular, and I, I think it it just it's just something about that that connects, in my view anyway, with with the Creator, with a an awesome God who could create this amazing diversity of life from you know the tiny little uh, krill that um, you know some whales. Uh, uh, feed on and and so forth. These tiny little crustaceans, like little, um, well, they're, they're like little uh, what we call prawns, I suppose, but um, and smaller krill. They're a little um, multi-segmented uh, little uh, creature that uh, that uh, swims around in the water. But the huge amount of food, of course, that these animals uh, would require. And um, I remember reading, of, of course, that the blue whale, which um, again uh, feeds on on krill, uh, can grow up to a uh, hundred feet long. Um, you know, that'd be over thirty meters, I guess, and weigh two hundred tons. Um, when you think of that, I mean, that's like a hundred SUVs, a hundred four-wheel drive vehicles. Um, in one creature, this—I mean, it's, it's the largest uh, creature that ever lives. Apparently, bigger, larger than any of the dinosaurs. Um, so the blue whale—and they're still alive. They're still there. These giant, giant creatures. Um, and again, the fact that we have some of these, so many of these giant creatures still there, um, makes the—you know—the. I guess a little bit of a glimpse of what it must have been like living in the time of the of the dinosaurs. 
And, of course, you know, the evolutionary model doesn't allow for humans living with dinosaurs. But I think when we look at some of the descriptions in the Bible, in Job, and also in Genesis, where it talks about, you know, God creating the great sea monsters and and so forth, um, the, the evidence is there that uh, there were... Uh, human-dinosaur interactions. I think the overwhelming number of dragon accounts, dragon stories around the world fit um, the uh, image of uh, the giant lizards and uh, particularly in in some of the northern uh, countries, Norway and Sweden, as I've, I think I've mentioned before, talking to uh, uh, a scientist when I was visiting one of the universities up there, uh, she was saying there's so much in the folklore of um, the history of these Scandinavian countries of these giant uh, predator, what they're called dragons or giant monsters that were there. Uh, and, of course, um, on one of the islands just up off the North Pole, I found quite a well-preserved uh, skeleton of a giant uh, marine reptile that, um, and they recovered soft tissue. From that, so again, you know, the fact that we find soft tissue in these things just, in my mind, just confirms this picture that these giant creatures did exist. But um, the largest of all the, the toothed whales um, are the the sperm whales, and I was reading a very very interesting article about um, sperm whales. They're one of the deepest diving. Uh, animals and uh, in the world they're about they're, they're uh, as far as I know in terms of recording there's a, a couple of other um, creatures that um, I think there's a particular seal that can dive uh, deeper and uh, I think there's a, another smaller whale that can dive deep deeper but um, these enormous whales that can reach up to 20 metres in length um, and uh, weigh about uh, 50 tonnes, uh, 50,000 kilos, They're, they can dive down 1,000 metres. They can dive a kilometre down into the ocean um, in search of their preferred food, which is uh, squid. And so... Um, yeah, when you think about that, being able to dive down that uh, that far, and uh, we know, you know, divers get the bends and all this sort of thing uh, if they come up too rapidly, and so the design that enables them to do this, because you know, when you think a whale, they breathe air, they can't just stay down there that long. They've got to come up and and rebreathe, and so it's very interested to read about um, the sperm whales because I've been interested in them for a long time. You hear the stories about battles between um, giant squid and and sperm whales, although none have ever been observed. But they have found the sucker marks, giant sucker marks on the, the side of um, sperm whales that have been captured uh, that obviously showed they were had um, been grasped by a very, very large squid. It's interesting that um, as they say they can dive a kilometre down into the waters in search of their food and they search for food day and night, um, staying um, down 
on on average apparently 40 to 50 minutes, but sometimes more than two hours have actually been recorded um, in the order of 138 minutes. And when they surface, they stay up for about 10 minutes um, to release the carbon dioxide and, and take in more oxygen. But when you think about it, one of the challenges is how do these huge animals locate their prey in the dark ocean down there? I mean, a kilometre down is not much light. Um, how do they provide sufficient oxygen for all their tissues when they're, when they're down there for so long? And how can they survive those pressures? And also, I've got to think, when you get down a kilometre down, the ocean's pretty cold, <laughs> down there. And so these are some of the reasons that reading the article about the sperm whale, I've, I was very interested to read about these and to learn. And one of the features of these tooth whales is their capacity to use echolocation to find their prey. Sort of like bats, we hear a lot about echolocation in bats, but the echolocation is the whale's ability to see by emitting the specialised sounds to and that way they get a picture of their environment. So as the sound waves bounce off objects in their environment and then come back, as the uh, sound comes back from the distant objects, they can pick the differences, um, I guess, in the time coming. And, and um, the sperm whales actually um, have special valves uh, along with... Um, very uh, with uh, small sort of uh, bodies of fat that are located in the um, upper uh, nasal or breathing opening in the sperm whale's head, and these uh, produce the the sound, very high frequency sound. The air is forced through these valves and causes them to vibrate in a manner similar to the human vocal cords, but the sound is at a much higher frequency than is heard by humans, this echolocation sound. And then it's actually directionally transmitted towards its prey by the spermaceti organ. And so this is this organ that takes up so much of the sperm whale's head space, uh, which, and sperm whale's heads, of course, are... Uh, are huge. They actually occupy a third of their body length. This uh, spermaceti organ takes up um, is filled with uh, uh, low density fats that sort of act like a lens. They act like a sound lens, um, and they produce these short duration clicks, um, which is sort of like ends up being like a buzzing sound as it approaches a prey. And um, so the whales can actually change the vibration frequency and the time of the vibration and um, or the interval and the duration. And using this in their brain, their brain can interpret those signals as a three-dimensional image. Now, when you think about this is this is really incredible because... The, what, what we see here is we've got physical structures, right? But the image in the mind of the whale is non-material because it's, it's its thoughts. And, of course, whales have the, the largest brains on the planet. The, 
the um, blue whale has uh, you know the largest brain of any any animal, and uh, so these whales got giant brains. So when you think about it, producing this image is actually non-material. It's in their thoughts, in their consciousness. And so this really poses a very unique problem for, for evolution in that we have all these structures that work together, right, that generate the sound, that are enabled to be focused and so forth to produce an image that's interpreted by the whale's brain in his mind and he can then picture an image, much the same as when we look at an object through our eyes, we form an image. That image in our brain is non-material, it's in our mind. And these are major problems. Consciousness is a major problem. But the eye, and as I said, this echolocation device in a sperm whale, the fact that we have physical organs that coordinate together then to produce an image, and if they're not all there, it's not going to work, right? It's not going to produce an image. The whale's not going to be able to hunt and provide. It's powerful evidence that the whole thing had to be created at once and designed. Now, one of the other aspects in sperm whales is that the sound is not directed into the middle ear through the ear canal as it is in humans, but through highly sensitive fat tissue, which is actually located in the jaw. And then the sound's conducted to the inner ear. And it's, this is via an organ called the tympanic bulla, which is suspended by connective tissue in a mixture of fat and air that actually separates the middle ear from the skull and thereby focuses the sound waves to enhance reception. So again, we've got this sound, special sound focusing device uh, or mechanism within the whale to concentrate the reflected sound back for the image. And uh, this membrane is reinforced with bony ligaments that again improved uh, hearing, particularly at high frequencies. So we have here a totally coordinated system, both in emitting sounds and also in receiving the sounds and producing that picture. I guess one of the other things is the breath-holding sperm whales have a number of uh, physiological mechanisms to counteract the compression and subsequent damage that would result to tissues from the huge hydrostatic pressure when diving um, down. So I'm uh, just trying to think um, an atmosphere, one atmosphere of water is uh, 34 feet. So that'd be, say, 11 metres, something like that. So if we go down, you know, a kilometre, we're looking at almost uh, 100 atmospheres pressure. You know, around that order, you know, it might be 90 atmospheres of, um, of pressure, if my calculation is, is correct. That's a massive uh, pressure. And if we look at 15 pounds per square inch, well, so, you know, you're looking at uh, something like 14... 14 or 1,500 pounds per square inch pressure. And so this enormous pressure on the, um, on the whale there um, uh, would, you know, just compress thing. But it's interesting, the, in order for this not to occur, the pressure within the body 
uh, with the, the air, any air spaces within the body must match that of the ambient pressure so to avoid any distortion or crushing. And um, so it's quite fascinating that as the whale dives, the air-filled cranial sinuses and so forth in the head there become engorged. So they sort of swell up um, and squash out the air. So they eliminate the air so as to prevent a sinus squeeze. And the other thing is the airways, the peripheral airways in the sperm whale are especially reinforced Um, And this allows for a gradual collapse of the lungs with their air being pushed into the upper airways and that actually stops the exchange of gases in the blood. And so this eliminates the, uh, or greatly reduces the risk of the whale getting the Benz type philometer. Because this limiting this gas exchange reduces the nitrogen absorption and hence, uh, you know, for uh, prevents uh, nitrogen narcosis. So, and it's interesting that the lungs of sperm whales only store about 5% of their total oxygen, and so they're actually not considered as important for the oxygen store. Instead, the actual oxygen is stored in the blood of the whale. So, blood, whales have uh, a very large amount of blood in their tissues, you know, about 200 to 250 mils per kilogram of tissue. And this acts as a huge oxygen store. Now, I know know, I have great problems holding my breath for any length of time underwater. I'm amazed when I see these people that can hold their breath for four minutes and this sort of thing, divers. But it's very interesting in the whale itself, it's not relying on that oxygen stored in their lungs as I would be, but instead they have a very large blood supply and this blood has the capacity to store large amounts of oxygen. Um, And one of the reasons it can store this extra amount is that the blood um, in the um, uh, sperm whale has much higher levels of the oxygen-binding proteins, hemoglobin and myoglobulin um, in the blood and in the muscles and so forth. So again, it has much higher levels of these particular oxygen-binding proteins. So again, this all points to design. You know, for evolutionists to propose that, uh, you know, and they reckon a lot of these whales and that were land-dwelling mammals that returned to the sea. You know, some of the stories, when you think about they they just lack common sense. And... For the DNA code to deliberately then start changing so it makes higher levels, higher concentrations of these particular uh, special proteins so that the whale can survive underwater. What's the random chances of that happening? You know, because it's got to be just a random mutation. And when we look at all these design features, we can see random mutations aren't going to generate these systems that work together. And without them, the, the whale's not going to work, it's not going to be able to dive and all this sort of thing. The other fascinating thing is that sperm whales can also reduce their oxygen use and energy consumption by slowing down their heart rate and metabolic rate when they dive. 
And again, so these, they have the mechanism, so I guess it just becomes an automatic control mechanism that slows this down. As they're diving, of course, they use less energy because they can just fall down. And um, they're streamlined torpedo-like body. Of course, it's amazing shape. And you look at them, um, low torpedoes were designed after that shape. Um, along with uh, extensive use of gliding, provides minimum drag and reduced workload for the muscles. So um, it's amazing. Now, another aspect, of course, is the ability to maintain body core temperature. This is another essential physiological mechanism of a warm-blooded sperm whale. And they're going into this really cold environment. And um, water, of course, is a very good conductor of heat. We use That's why we use it in our automobile radiators. But they have blubber, again, which can be up to 250 millimetre thick. And uh, particularly around the whale's organs provides this insulation. Also, they have a low... Um, uh, body surface to volume ratio that reduces heat loss um, and uh, but what about their flukes and flippers they're very thin and they don't have much blubber and to overcome this the whales have a special countercurrent system which involves arteries and veins that run parallel but in opposite direction. The cool incoming venous blood from the flukes and flippers that are exposed to the cold water is warmed by the outgoing arterial blood from the heart forming an efficient heat transfer mechanism. Isn't that amazing? And conversely, when under heat stress, whales have a superficial venous system in their skin that is not warm by outgoing arterial blood and thus enables the whale to cool down. You know, when you think about it, sperm whales are amazingly designed for foraging and living in deep ocean waters. And, um, you know, if you remove any of those interconnected mechanisms... It would affect their ability to survive down there. And really, it's amazing evidence of a super intelligent designer creator. You know, when we look at so many things in nature, we have overwhelming evidence of supernatural design, super intelligent design that was able to not only design the, the whole concept, but then was able to make a genetic code, the DNA code, that could encode this information and then make micro-machines that could read that code and translate it and actually build the organism. When you think of whales start off as a little cell, some male and female gamete cells combine, they form that little cell that grows and multiplies and builds that mechanism. That whole whale is built that way from and, and powered by metabolic processes and energy to build that whale to that design. You know, the whole thing just points of an amazing creator. We have an amazing, awesome God that has said that one day he's coming again and he's going to recreate all the people that have believed in him again, alive, make them alive at the second coming of Jesus. You know, when we see this design, that is a very believable statement that the guy who created this system, the God who did that, can recreate 
us if we have died and if we're alive, we create us with perfect bodies. And that's the hope that the Christians have. That's the story that the, the Bible has of a God who created us, of sin and things went wrong, and he wants to recreate us to live with him perfectly in a wonderful life again. You know, you've been listening to Faith and Science. I'm Dr. John Ashton. If you want to re-listen to these programs, remember you can Google 3ABN Australia, or one word, .org.au, and click on the Listen button. Have a great day. been listening to a production of 3ABN Australia Radio.